Uh, when Stan said, you know, to take a step forward, and um, it's really humbling coming back to South Africa, a country that we hold so dear to our hearts, and we get beautiful introductions and honoring, like, honestly blows us away and is, is very, very humbling. But I know who we are. And, and I live with me, and I live with him. And, and I'm very grounded in, in who we are. And, and I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, we are absolutely nothing special. I know the 15-year-old that gave her life to Jesus and what that trajectory could have looked like without Jesus. And then I know the 18-year-old that got married to this man way too young, and we could have blown it so many times. And then I know the 21-year-old girl that was fighting, fighting, fighting the call of God on our lives because I didn't believe that I could do this. I didn't believe that I could step into these shoes. And, and honestly, all I did was surrender and say, God, could you use me? To plant a church, it seems like a crazy thing at 21. And I opened my hands and I said yes to Jesus. And I just want to say that is it. Like, yes, training. Has it all been wonderful? No. There's been hard times and growth and learning. But I know who we are. And I want to just encourage you. What Stan said I felt was so prophetic. Just a step forward in Jesus. Just a step that says yes. God, this is what I'll do in obedience to you. Thank you, my love. I, I have my own. <laughs> I was actually thinking about um, our shared origin. Now, those churches that didn't come out of um, either VFC Red Point or Glenridge, if you would just give us a little bit of family, family moment, that would be great. But uh, in 1976, I joined what was then called the Invisible Church, and I'd met in a little church down here in Marshalls, as it was then. I don't know what it's called now. And um, there was a small group of people Sunday mornings, and there was a larger group Sunday nights. And I remember being incredibly compelled as I experienced something that my Dutch Reformed and Methodist roots didn't really do. Like, people were happy. You know, like really big things like that. And... Um, but I was just thinking about it from that small little group, and Ray's here, he'll remember, a small little group of us who were so passionate about Jesus, and we believed that he was coming back soon. Uh, that was Barry Maguire and uh, Larry Norman all told us, you know, that he was coming back soon. So we lived humble lives, we, we, we lived communally, we preached on the street. They were heady and intoxicating days. And uh, Rob uh, Rufus and Dave Lepowski and I, they, they did a cell congregation celebration model. And uh, so uh, Rob and Dave Lepowski and I headed up the Westville Pinetown congregation at Westville Boys High because that was where I came from. I'm a, I'm a Westville boy. And um, then that kind of all imploded, but Rob and Dave went and planted... Invisible Church, Pinetown, above Waring's, then Victory Faith Center. And I remember going to do the worship when Rob needed help. I would go and help out with the worship and then became v Victory Faith Center and um, Red Point. 
and uh, we were part of the Invisible Church that stayed here. It also imploded, and then Glenridge was seeded out of that. Now, I'm saying that for a couple of reasons. One, it's good, good to be reminded of our history. It really is good for us to know all these years later, we stand. Were the times hard? Yes. When the Invisible Church imploded, dreams went with it. There's a whole Facebook world of the Invisible Church people who have never recovered from 1983, 82, 83. But, but God and His great plan has stood firm. I want to honor Nelson Nurse who started it, an ex-addict, an artist who started the Invisible Church by preaching the gospel to people who were just like him. And then Nelson went to London to start the Invisible Church London, and Carl Cronier uh, came in here. Carl was a phenomenal Bible teacher, but a man of fragile character. Got married and divorced three times. But he was the one who called Rob and I aside and said, I will give you a thinking man's faith. And I'm so deeply grateful. He would not let us move theologically. Why? Why do you say that? Show me from the text. He would nudge us and box with us all the time. And whilst I didn't learn character from Carl, I learned theology and a love for the Scriptures that's in my heart even to this day. And both Nelson and Carl are with the Lord now. But I'm saying all of that because this is part of an ongoing seeded notion which God had in eternity and that you are living out today. Um, I wonder if my son would mind standing. He doesn't often travel with us because he's now graduated from college and he's now working. But T, it's great to have you. That's my son, Tion, Californian born. So what I want to do with you tonight is, is a double-edged sword. Number one, I want to pique your theological curiosity. Um, because I think it is time for theological humility, meaning we have to continuously put ourselves in a position of learning. I was saying to Mark's crew this morning, it's so easy for us when we hear the guy or gal open up the scriptures and we're like, oh, jeez, I've heard that. You know what? The parable of the seed and the sower, it's the 45th time I've heard a message on it. What we do inadvertently is we seal our theological grasp. We say this far and no further. Subconsciously, it's not even intentional or rebellious, but we believe we, we can learn nothing more than what we already know. And the problem is what we know is insipid and inadequate. And we only find out what we know and what we uh, grasp when we go through times like you have just gone through them. COVID, which was brutal, the looting and rioting, which was uh, equally soul-destroying, and if that were not enough, the floods are now this weekend another wave. What do we believe in these times? These are the times our soul needs to grab on to some of the things we have learned wave upon wave upon wave over and over and over again. I'm a Liverpool soccer supporter. And we're drawing right now. You know, you my friend, right here, right here. And you know what's interesting? Liverpool, Liverpudlians never grow weary of singing. You'll never walk alone. They've won him. And they sing it over and over and over again at every game, home and away, over and over and over. And we who are Liverpool supporters sing it with them with great pride and joy. I've never sat watching a Liverpool game saying, oh, not that him again. 
are not that handsome. Can, can we learn a new anthem? Because there's a higher virtue than repetition. There is something in the soul of our supporting a jolly soccer team that it does not matter how often we sing it, even though they sing it badly and it's nowhere near the authentic anthem, original form, it's our team. And so I want to implore you this evening as we go through providence to ask God to keep a spirit of humility and teachability because you don't know when you will need this or whatever truth is being presented from the pulpit. And remember, God can use the newest preacher, the youngest preacher, the less experienced preacher, even the preacher with poor theology, God can use to shape us and fashion us and form us for the days which lie ahead. I also want to thank you for being here. You know, when we do it, I don't know, Meryl's dad turned 90 today. And so the grandson, one, the one grandson worked out, it means he's lived 32,000, 38,000 days. What's that? And how many billions of seconds? 2.8 billion seconds. Kids with too much time on their hands. Now why am I telling that story? Thank you for being here. And, and I'll tell you why, because as we walk with the Lord, so it occurs to us that less and less times like this are for us or about us. Yeah. The crowd who was there when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, no one knows who they were. No one sings their praises. No one preaches about them because we preach about Zacchaeus. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, there might be one, two, three, four, or five Zacchaeuses who will remember the night of rain where God met with me and transformed me. Our songs, not only are they to declare His greatness, but to create an atmosphere with which God the Holy Spirit can work and touch people's hearts. I was telling someone somewhere, I forget, we had a worship evening the other night. And I was hosting it, but standing on the side, no chairs, and like you do. And I was watching this, and there was a girl, a very pretty little blonde girl, who obviously was uncomfortable with us, and she just stood like this the whole night. And I walked across to my daughter, Dana. I said, Dee, would you go and pray with her? God wants to minister to her. And so she went across there, started praying, and this girl collapsed, just started weeping uncontrollably. And I and others prayed for her. And at the end of the evening, she went to Dana. And I forgive the crassness of the language, but that's what happens when unbelievers encounter God. Encounter God. And she said, now tell me, when you people sing like this, does shit always happen? And we said, yes, it does. Now, the hundred of us who were worshiping, probably don't even remember that night, like, was it last month, or was it the month before? But she will always remember it, because it was our simple steps of obedience that created the atmosphere through which God could get hold of her very broken, self-defensive, walls-up soul, and let her encounter the true and living God. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being selfless. You could be at home watching soccer. You could be watching Netflix or whatever you might be doing. But you are here allowing God to use your songs of praise to touch someone's life in a truly transformative way. 
So on the one hand, it's to call you to a higher theological journey. And on the other hand, it's to open your heart up to what God can do with you tonight going forward. I was like you. Nick and Cutty and Meryl were like you, sitting in a meeting one day when God gripped our soul as He might do yours. So what do I want to do tonight? I want to just play around, explore a little bit the doctrine of providence. Now, it's an interesting word because it's not a Bible word, meaning it's not in this recorded text. And it's not common in our modern vernacular. It's not like I said to Meryl, hey, babe, what are we having for dinner and what about providence? You know, it's not really, it doesn't fit into our common language. And yet it is a most exquisite doctrine. Paul said to Timothy, and don't turn, this isn't my major passage, but I thought I would read it in one we all know well. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. When all kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord, excuse me, rescued me from all. I'll skedaddle forward a little bit. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learnt it. And from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Can, can, I, can, I, can I be vulnerable with you? I know a number of friends and family who've stopped going to church. And I'm like, your faith's okay. I'm not even going to throw a legal spanner in the works. But when I look at your kids... When I look at your grandkids, the further we move from the flame of God, the greater is the cooler cooling and the greater the distance from the eternal one. He says, Timothy, remember what you learned from infancy. How those little stories, David, Goliath, lions, Daniel, remember those things that you learned from infancy. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the Word. Be prepared in and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will uh, not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires. Um, okay, I'll stop there. So, I want to just explore the language of providence. Like you, we have had a global crisis. And those of you who remember when I was out in October, I said that Acts 8, the persecution and the pandemic have incredible similarities, and since then you've added riots and floods. It's a time of incredible scattering. Even to this morning, we heard of someone who made a decision, and in two weeks' time are going to the nations of the world. Now, do you know what an exciting time that is? Do you know what an occasion it is for the gospel? If we realize church planting is not for the elite, it's for the obedient where we open up our homes and our hearts around the dining room table and we invite people into that space to see what God can do with the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of a good meal. 
When people scattered in the early church, it meant churches, communities were planted. They weren't able to gather, and it amazed me how that became a political bun fight. The possibility of death, the deep sense of loneliness, the trauma of mental health, fear and anxiety heightened, the deconstruction of the church and faith, deeply divisive, economic fragility, and the loss and trust of leadership. So, what on earth do we do with this? Well, let me, can I nerd out with you just a little bit? I want to just explore some possible definitions of what providence might do, and then I'm taking you to Ruth. And we're going to enjoy the story of two women who are forever recorded in the annals of the sacred scriptures. Providence then, says Baker's, is the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things. Now, this is going to be a little heady. Just work with me. It's the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end. It's the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end. They carry on. This divine, sovereign, and benevolent control of all things by God is the underlying premise of everything that is taught in the Scriptures. Quite wordy, I apologize. Anonymous, meaning I can't remember where I got this definition. Providence is that unseen work of God by which He upholds, governs, and orchestrates all things. J.I. Packer, who most of us know from his book, what's his book, Love? Loving God? Knowing, knowing God. He said this, God's involvement in the world the process and the acts of rational creatures requires complementary sets of statements. I know it's wordy. It will make sense in a moment. A person takes action or an event is triggered by natural causes or Satan shows his hand, yet God overrules it all. One more. Rodman Williams, probably the number one charismatic theologian, said this, Providence may be defined as the overseeing care and guardianship of God over all His creation. He is intimately concerned and committed to His creation. He's not watching from a distance. He's not disengaged. He's not a deus, some neutral divine entity. He is a deeply intimate and personal God who loves and speaks today. The doctrine of providence is not a doctrine of superficial optimism. You know, we charismatics have an obligation to optimism. You know, the head, not the tail, on top and up beneath. We, we, we kind of wax lyrical by little phrases because we feel like we have to be positive. And those of you who've heard me teach on Habakkuk over the last days will understand that in the light of the latter part of chapter 1 and chapter 2. We are not obligated to superficial optimism. He goes on to say, it is far removed from the fatuous, which means silly and pointless optimism. It seeks to recognize complexity of the world God has made, the trial and travail in it all. I know it's wordy. I know there's a lot in it. And to speak realistically of God's way of acting. It's a doctrine of profound realism. Let's go to Ruth and let's see if any of these words make sense whatsoever. It's just after the book of Judges, so it's about 23% into the Bible. It's a story of two women. 
Because we're going to read passages, I'll bring you up to speed with the story. There's a woman called Naomi. And Naomi is married with her husband and two boys. And times are hard economically. So they make a decision in famine, we're going to go across and we're going to find better economic spaces where the politics is more, are more stable and everything is going to be a whole lot more doable. The only problem is her husband, Elimech, Elimelech, dies. So they leave their homeland with the two boys. They go across to Moab and they find a new life with economic prosperity and blessing. It sounds like so many a story you and I know intimately. And then her husband dies, premature. And now you and I know that in antiquity, a widow, if she does not have boys or kids, is in trouble. There's no social security. There's no insurance. She is fried, except her sons have grown up, and they have a wife each. And then the boys die. And Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. And she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Beautiful story. And now comes one of the most sacred moments between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And she says to the two of them, please go home. I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer you. Even if I go back now and I marry and I have two boys, you can't marry them. And the one daughter-in-law hugs her and says to her with great affection, thank you, I love you, and she goes back to her people. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth had determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now, we love you reading that at weddings. But just pause for a moment. What had Ruth lost? Ruth had lost her father-in-law. She'd lost her husband. She'd lost her income. She'd lost her family. She lost her culture. And she lost her homeland. This was a massive decision, dear friends. She was cutting off any access to all six of those things. What a decision. What foolishness. Unless there was something else at play. She goes back, does Naomi, to the little village, the little town where she's from. And the woman run out to meet them. But she says to these women, please don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I want you to soak in the emotion of the story. They left everything, Ruth did, to follow her mother-in-law who offered her nothing. She was going to a strange town, strange culture, 
strange context without any guaranteed income. Why would someone be that foolish? In those days, there was a culture in which when a a, a husband dies, his immediate family are obligated to take the woman and to marry her and manage his property. So Ruth goes, and many of you know the story, and starts, I mean, she is poor. They pick up the the barley that is left behind by the harvesters. So the harvesters come through and gather in the grain or the barley, whatever it is, and the poor were able to walk behind them free of charge and pick up the pieces. Boaz arrived at his farm, and he liked what he saw. I mean, brothers, I love the honesty of Scripture. This isn't the Lord has spoken to me. This is, mm mm-hmm. Who's she? Well, she's Ruth. Oh, I heard about Ruth. Isn't she related to Naomi? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I want you to keep her in this field. I don't want her to pick up a few pieces and then go to another field and pick up. I I, I want you to, to purposefully miss so that she can pick up and have enough of her own which she does. And she goes back to Naomi and says, Naomi, I don't know why, but, but, but I've got all this food. And Naomi says, Who, who's the guy? Who's the guy? And his name's Boaz. Mmm, says Naomi. Yeah, yeah, I know him. He's family. I want you to pick up the story because providence does not happen in theological isolation. It's a story that unfolds, and we see the hand of God threading its way through our lives. I stood up here tonight, and I saw the hand of God weave its way through our lives from a little church in Marshalls, if it's still there, to two strong, healthy, throbbing churches 40 years older. The hand of providence is at work. Have the leaders made mistakes? Probably more than they could wish to remember. But there is, except Nick, but there are other things that are at work, dear friends. Somehow the overriding sense of the hand of God that governs and upholds all of creation. Boaz realizes this is the one cute bookie. I, I don't want to be discourteous, but that's what I read in the text. But he realizes he hasn't got access to her because he's not first in line to marry her. So he goes to the elders at the gate, which is what they had to do. And he says to the elders, this is Naomi. She's now called Mara. She was pleasant, but now she's bitter. She's brought a Moabite uh, daughter-in-law with her. And here they are. She needs to be married. And the first in line... I forgive my imagination, but I think he stands there. She must have been cute. And, and he's like, mm-hmm. I'll take the land. Boaz wisely comes to him and says, listen, you know that with the land comes a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And I think this guy puts his hand in his head and says, listen, I've got enough going with my bulky. I don't need two other bulkies in my life. And he says, absolutely not. And Boaz earns the right to be the guardian redeemer. Isn't that just like Jesus? 
Isn't that just like Jesus redeeming a hopeless situation where a woman carries bitterness in her soul and now gets redeemed by someone paying for the rights to marry her and to manage the property, and in doing so, enlarging his world. Now, what's interesting to me in my reading and study is that Ruth was beautiful. The clever people tell us that. But Boaz was a little middle-aged. He, he did a little bit of extra around the tum-tum. <laughs> probably a receding hairline. Probably, I don't know, whatever middle-aged men have. I don't remember. It was too long ago. <laughs> But, but we know the story. Naomi goes and says, go and lie at his feet, a stinky, smelly farmer's feet, and turn the, 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 um, the duvet, the blanket, roll it back and go and lie there. Intentions are clear. I, I'm wanting you to understand there is a story unfolding here. A broken woman returns empty-handed with a foreign daughter-in-law and something is happening and I think Naomi is lifting her head with curiosity and saying, oh, okay, something's happening here. Maybe it's not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. And she marries the guardian redeemer. I want to pick up in the last chapter. It said, when, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he made love to her. I love the honesty of the Scriptures. And the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. She didn't know. Two unknown people in a rinky-dink town in the middle of the desert and something inside of Naomi says, this is going to be a famous dude. Did anything in their mind enter it that this was going to become Scripture? Their love story that was born out of pain and trauma was going to become defining Scripture? That in 2022, in a, in a hall in Durban, Africa, their story would be told. I guess not. A slightly plump, middle-aged man of some wealth marrying a gorgeous Moabite woman who had laid at his stinky, smelly feet. Who would have thought this would become Scripture to be preached for the eons of ages in all the countries of the world? That's Providence. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than the seven sons, has given birth. And Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. <coughs> and the woman lying there said, Naomi has a son. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if the story ended there, it would be a story worth telling, wouldn't it be? She lost her husband, she lost her sons, the one daughter-in-law left, the other daughter-in-law stayed, had this defining piece of poetry that everyone uses at weddings. <coughs> Excuse me. That'd be a good story. But providence is not yet finished. 
because God, the God who governs and upholds all creation to his predetermined end is still at work in the story of two strangers, a middle-aged man and a younger woman marrying and having a son. And Naomi feels her chest explodes. She's a grandma, she's a grandma, she's a grandma. But then it says, they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Now, I want to ask you to go to Matthew chapter 1, please. Or you can just listen. It doesn't matter. We're talking about providence. The undergirding governance and the upholding of God to any event towards his predetermined good. Here is Jesus' photo album. This is the book, like my kids love doing. Say, come on, let's put out some photo albums. Oh, no way. Was that you? You looked so young. I'm like, whatever. Whatever. So this is Jesus' photo album. I'll pick up in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab was a jolly prostitute who had a house on the wall of the city and let two Israeli uh, spies out and let them escape. Boaz's mother was a whore. But Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, a Moabite, a cute little Moabite. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Maybe he's going to be famous throughout the land. Lady, you do not know what you're prophesying. The only problem is, and that's part of the pain of providence, the logical outworking oftentimes happens after we are long gone. And an immediately, immediate obedience culture where we live a takeout food mindset. I want to eat and I want to eat now. We cannot live with the beauty, wonder, and splendor of providence that works its way out after I'm long gone. Because the photo album ends with, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. In their lineage a middle-aged, podgy farmer who married a cute little girl and had a son. Not only was he the great-grandfather. Can you imagine, folks? Sorry, man. I, I'm, can you imagine? In, in, a, in a day and age, today, sexual promiscuity is way more acceptable. And, and couples live together. And, but can you imagine at a time like that where a woman of ill repute lived on the edge of the city? I went to visit Dana at Oxford. She was studying at Oxford University. And she took me for a walk through the old town. And she said, this house, and it's kind of leaning across like this. She said, Dad, this used to be the house outside of the city wall. You see the wall there? She said, this was outside because this is where the prostitutes lived. This is where the prostitutes lived, and Boaz was the son. Can you imagine the stigma and the trauma of being the son of a prostitute? And God says, but providence. And we have the privilege of these multiple generations of divine photo albums to say, oh my God. 
If you can take a foreign prostitute and make her pivotal to her story, if you can take a Moabite woman who lost everything and make it pivotal to your story, can it be that you would take my story and make it pivotal to a global gospel adventure? I want to land, and you've been incredibly kind to me, with some scripture. Are you with me? All right. Well-known texts. Well-known texts. But they are worth reading. There's many things to say, but we'll just leave them behind. So can these. Romans chapter 8. For in this hope, providence, we were saved. And hope that is not seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently. It does not matter what my circumstance looks like. The trauma of death, the grief of lost sons, the um, uh, fragility of no income. Going back after this great adventure, we're leaving tra-la-la-la-la, and now we come back empty-handed, barren, without anything to show, dependent on other people's generosity. For in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know, here it comes, we all know this one, that in all things... God works for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. You know, this morning, I, I, I hope the lady doesn't mind me recounting it probably poorly, but during the worship, which was very sweet, she came to Mark and said, I've got this little thingy to share, which she did, and it was something along the lines of just feeling insipid or insignificant. Can you imagine how insignificant Naomi must have felt? Can you imagine what Ruth must have felt, a foreigner disorientated by a new culture, a new homeland, a new family, a new family system? If anyone had said to her, the Messiah of the ages will come from your womb, she would have laughed uncontrollably. What on earth? are you talking about? Is it okay that the greatest fruition of your call will happen once you're dead? Because providence extends beyond a single generation. It's we who struggle if it doesn't happen to me now. Chris, I've got all these prophetic words, but nothing's happened, and I'm so discouraged that what if God wants to bring them to fruition when you're gone. What do you think I feel like when the prophetic words came in 1983, September, when we planted Glenridge? I have the privilege to see providence in you. Four leaders later, four decades later, four adventures later, Standing strong because the providence of God is His governance upholding all things for His predetermined purpose. Can I, can I just, I hope you don't mind. 
But Glenridge was about a thousand when God spoke to me to move, and I didn't know where, but to America. And Meryl said, Chris, you are nuts. You're absolutely nuts. I'm 38 years old. This is a dream gig. There's money in the bank. The church is growing. A thousand people. We're planting churches. And grace was gone. I used to say to her, babe, I can't stay. I can't stay. Providence moved me on. I'd done what I needed to do. Now others had to run with the baton. Are you okay with that, Chris? What do you think I felt like when I used to go into DLI in the tent and then came here and there were thousands of people and Rory leading it in his inimitable gift that's such an amazing gift? Think I was jealous? I was so grateful because the things God promised us under my watch were being fulfilled under His watch. And that's why providence is so incredibly powerful. What about your life, dear friend? Are you okay? If God chooses, T and I had such a great conversation late last night around spiritual things, and I just went upstairs. I actually didn't sleep much last night at all. But I just went upstairs and saying, God, you are so amazing. Because providence exists beyond my passing. One more scripture and we are done. Ephesians chapter 1. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of His glorious grace, which He has lavished. Rahab! The prostitute on the wall! Your line will give birth to the Messiah. Ruth! A Moabite in a foreign culture in a foreign town amongst foreign people with foreign cultures. The Messiah will come from your womb. Providence. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ. To be put into the effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him, we're also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him. Here it comes. Who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be to His glory. You know, folks, I land. When I think of Naomi, we grandparents six times over. Meryl has been in the room in all six our grandparents. No, one wasn't. COVID, you weren't allowed to be. And when she's walked out of that place, the sheer joy, the, 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 the life-giving radiance of joy that oozed out of her. Nas, Dana, the baby we've been given. Can you imagine the radiance of Naomi? She had no clue of what God would take with a woman who wanted to be called bitter and the consequences of an obedient life. My dear friends, do you understand why these doctrines are so important? Do you understand when you and I go through times of profound darkness and we're overwhelmed by things that aren't happening, we lose sight of them that sometimes they're not for this time. 
for this hour, for this moment. Providence says He is guarding over His Word to see it fulfilled. And that, dear friends, is the doctrine of providence. We put it into our belt and we hold tight for the days ahead need to give us the hope that comes because of who He is. Let's pray together. I'm sure the those who put the scriptures together must have pondered long and hard with these little books, little four-chapter books, stories, storytelling, and whether they were and are sacred scripture. But we read them all these thousands of years later and we realize the overriding call of doctrine ever lies before us. Paul said to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, for in doing so you will save yourself and your hearer. Timothy, watch your life and the doctrine of providence closely, for in doing so you will save both yourself and your hearer. These days are brutal. Mara is a word often used in these highly demanding times. But the seed of something eternal resides in us. In Jesus' name.